The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, here it is again, 9-11. It seems to come around faster and faster every year. We're going to be talking today about inspirational stories of survival for 9-11 because, um, well, for a number of reasons, but one, one part is that um, I know it's hard for people to listen um, to, people dread 9-11 coming around, and that's natural. It's an anniversary reaction. We all suffered a lot of pain uh, that day, um, some more than others. Some of my guests, as, as you'll hear, uh, have closer ties. I, being born and bred and raised in New York, um, feel particular, a particular closeness to the World Trade Center. And also, of course, if um, you haven't heard me talk about this already, I'm the author of a book called Coping with Terrorism, Dreams Interrupted. That was a book that was published in 2006 in London at the first anniversary of 7-7, their 9-11, and uh, it's going to be published in the U.S. Um, but the reason why I wrote that at the time was because I, I thought, what's the biggest contribution that I could make to our society as a psychiatrist? And that's, that's where that came from. Um, I mean, yes, of course, <laughs> I want to help you identify bad girls and bad boys and find love and all of this, but this is something is, that's more serious and and. Um, hits us on another level, hits our heart in another level. So uh, what's kind of interesting and sad, at the, to me it's sad, I'll ask my guests what they think, but um, I've been looking to see what uh, is happening today. We're doing the show on 9-11. Um, and I've been rather disappointed to see how subdued it is and uh, concerned that our society, I mean, we have been in denial, and I've been trying to wake people up from their denial so that they can keep prepared, recognize how 9-11 is still Im- impacting us, all of us, uh, psychologically and physically, and to prepare for the marathon that we are under, that we've been running, um, in terms of being prepared for the next attack. Because just because Osama is dead, terrorism is still alive and well. So um, today, you know, I think people thought after the 10th anniversary, in fact, I was reading some things, some articles that were saying this, um, that, you know, that was the, now we can heal and put it behind us. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's nice, the idea of healing is good, but we can't put it behind us because the terrorists are not putting it behind them. They're still very much intent on bringing down the West. So we can't forget, we can't forget the victims 
of 9-11, and we can't forget what this means for us. They, we can't let them have died in vain. Uh, they, their, their lives have to, have to be a symbol for us of, of what we have to do, how we can't uh, be so blind in the future. So, to talk about today and to give you some inspirational stories of survival, I have as my guests uh, Dr. Benjamin Luft. He is the director of Stony Brook University's World Trade Center Health Program for First Responders. And then I have uh, guests who are survivors in various ways, Debbie Irwin, Roy Cohn, and Andy LaPointe. Actually, Andy, I hope, is that how you pronounce it? That is correct, Dr. Carroll. Thank okay. you. Okay. And um, so let's start with you, uh, Dr. Luft. Tell us, first of all, how you got involved in, in becoming the director of this program for, for first responders. And um, as I was telling Dr. Luft off the air, I am a proud alumnus of Stony Brook. <laughs> and um, so I'm particularly interested in this. But tell us how you got involved and what the program does. Well, thank you. Uh, well, immediately after uh, 9-11, uh, I, I was, at that time I was the chairman of the Department of Medicine, and like any many medical centers throughout the uh, greater New York area, we were placed on uh, on uh, we, we started to have a vigil uh, waiting for uh, the victims uh, of this great uh, disaster to come to our, our medical center. And uh, throughout the day, we were we, we stayed uh, within the conference room. Uh, we discharged many of the patients uh, from the hospitals who did, who were not uh, acutely ill. Uh, waiting for uh, the re- these uh, survivors to come to our uh, hospital, and what really became apparent was that uh, these pe- that there were very few survivors, uh, that people either uh, escaped or, or they succumbed to the uh, to the disaster. Uh, short- shortly thereafter, uh, I went down to Ground Zero and I saw the site. And it was also very apparent to me that this was a very uh, toxic uh, environment. Uh, the responders were, you know, constantly working. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of dust and debris uh, in, in the environment. Uh, they were uh, under a tremendous amount of psychic trauma uh, as well, uh, having experienced uh, uh, close to 2,700 people uh, who died uh, during the, uh, the attack. Uh, not only were these people killed, but they were uh, dismembered, uh, and, uh, and and this was what they were uh, experiencing. At the same time, they were under constant and continuous uh, danger. So we came back uh, to our medical center, uh, and we established a free clinic uh, to take care of responders who did not have insurance, uh, many of them uh, being construction workers and laborers, uh, and that we would provide them with uh, with their uh, physician services if they if they needed it, and that was the beginning uh, of our program. Huh? And how has it evolved? Well, uh, initially uh, we did it uh, with the sense of volunteerism, and then uh, that's uh, uh, subsequently morphed uh, by uh, receiving funds from the Red Cross and from the state, and then finally the federal government. And uh, at this point, we're following a close to 7,000 responders across uh, uh, Nassau County and Suffolk County in Brooklyn, uh, and we provide uh, almost half of them with all of their health care needs as well. Huh. And so are you involved um, politically in terms of, you know, I know there's been all kinds of uh, struggles for first responders to get 
the proper medical care and to for for um, people to recognize the government to recognize what kinds of illnesses really are attributable to 9/11 and then to compensate them for that. Well, I wouldn't say that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm involved uh, politically more so than taking care of these uh, people. Many of them have become my friends, uh, but I am involved uh, scientifically uh, in being able to uh, tell the truth uh, about 9/11 uh, in uh, using uh, all the uh, acumen that I has have as a as a scientist, and I think that the uh, facts speak for itself. And as a result of that. Uh, many of these patients are finally receiving the care that they all deserve. And what are some of the illnesses that, that 11 years later we're seeing, we've been seeing, you've been seeing? Well, I think this, the illnesses that are associated uh, with 9-11 uh, to a large part are really directly related to the toxic exposures that these uh, patients experience. When one realizes uh, what happened on 9-11, when these two great towers uh, basically were disintegrated and pulverized. There was a tremendous amount of dust in the air. There was a very intense fire, which caused uh, uh, the burning of, uh, uh, of plastic. Uh, you know, uh, there was so, much, uh, so many computers and fluorescent lights within the, those, uh, and electronic uh, equipment uh, within those structures. And all of this was uh, pulverized and, and put into the, uh, into the air. Uh, Subsequently, we found out that many of these uh, were carcinogens and uh, other toxins. Uh, as a result of that, the, you know, the responders who were there uh, working feverishly were inhaling uh, uh, all of this uh, material, uh, which was very caustic, and it almost caused a, a burning of their upper respiratory tract uh, of, their, uh, and, uh, of their lung. And, and as a result of that, many of these patients have sinusitis and rhinitis, uh, they also have uh, reactive airway disease and asthma. Uh, they have lung, lung scarring uh, as well. And whatever was not inhaled, many of the responders ingested these material. It was all, you know, whatever didn't go down the, the windpipe went down the food pipe. And as a result of that, there was a lot of burning of the esophagus in the stomach. And so a lot of patients uh, complain of gastrointestinal problems uh, as well. And then, as I mentioned before, there was a tremendous amount of psychic injury that was occurring concomitantly. The responders came into an environment where there was a tremendous amount of human carnage. Uh, you know, 2,700 bodies were dismembered and disintegrated. But at the same time, they were under continuous and constant danger. There were, you know, people were jumping out of buildings. The buildings were falling. Uh, there was constant danger all around them. And just when you think about it, you know, when, you know, uh, a lot of uh, psychic trauma can occur just from a car accident. Mm-hmm. But now when you look at what happened in, uh, on 9-11 and subsequently, these people worked for days and weeks and months. It's like tens of thousands of car accidents occurring concurrently, you know, in, in rapid sequence. And as a result of that, there's a tremendous amount of psychic injury as well. The thing that's so surprising is that 11 years after 9-11, so many of these responders continue to suffer from both the physical and psychiatric or psychological trauma. Now, on top of that, now that we're entering into the 11th year, the long-term consequences of 9-11 are starting to be appreciated. What, is being, what was appreciated very early was that in that environment were a lot of carcinogens. And so now we're starting to see patients who come in with cancers, mm-hmm. and we're trying to find out whether that's related to 9-11 or not. 
but you know certainly uh, the specter is very uh, great. And what is the attitude of these people? Are they um, are they still you know would they still do it tomorrow, or are they are they angry that you know that these are the consequences? What what how are most of them feeling about this? Well, one of the things that uh, struck me uh, when I was taking care of these patients was that when you looked at the media uh, portrayal of the responders, that uh, they were being uh, uh, described in terms of their medical and psychological problems. You know, there was patients who had uh, asthma or respiratory problems and uh, and psychological problems, but that did not really define the responders uh, as to who they were. Uh, and so we started an oral history project. And in that project, you know, we've now interviewed over 200 uh, responders uh, in very detailed hin- his- histories as to what their motivation was and why they responded and, you know, what, how they suffered and, and how they renewed themselves. And uh, what we found was that uh, most of the responders, uh, what motivated them was a very deep sense of uh, of, uh, of of, of of brotherhood, of, of service, uh, altruism, of compassion to one another, of purpose. Uh, and this is the response uh, that occurred. And I think that this is what continues uh, to uh, embody them. And when you speak to a responder, very often they'll say that they would have done the, exactly the same thing, even though they continue to suffer from the consequences. I think what really bothers them is that what and it throws them for a loop is the the fact that after they began to suffer the consequences of their altruism, that uh, the greater society didn't appreciate that and, mm. and did not come to uh, to their aid. Mm. I think that they uh, initially they felt the great compassion, you know, of of uh, of all Americans, you know, their encouragement and their gratitude. But when you know push came to shove, all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, people they were they, they they were felt like they were left alone until the very recent passage of the Zadroga Act. Mm-hmm. Giving them the compensation. Right, yeah. right. And I, I think the compensation, it wasn't uh, as much of a money issue as it was a recognition yes, issue. Yes, yes. And I should talk about recognition. I, I meant to uh, mention that um, the, the, oral, the documentary and oral history project that's called Remembering 9-11 that you were just talking about. And also, I don't want to forget... To mention, you know, you, uh, Ground Zero, I've been there, um, and I think every American needs to plan to come to New York and visit Ground Zero. Uh, I mean, I know there are two other Ground Zeros, so to speak, but, um, but this is, this, there's, there are no words that can describe the feeling of being at that empty hole and uh, experiencing the wound, literally. Well, why don't we, that was great. Why don't we um, go next to Debbie Irwin? who um, is a mother and uh, uh, was and is a resident near the World Trade Center. Tell us about how the day was for you, Debbie. Well, um, it was, you know, that picture-perfect, gorgeous, blue September sky, and um, I had just uh, dropped off two of my kids. I have three kids the two that were still at the public school in the neighborhood, which is uh, just a couple blocks north of the World Trade Towers. Uh, One daughter was in first grade and the other was in uh, fourth grade. And as we often did um, as moms, once we said goodbye to the kids, we'd 
stand outside the school and chat for a couple of minutes and then go on our way. Well, I had my uh, golden retriever with me, and suddenly she just started pulling me. It was very strange, and a moment later, um, you know, the first plane hit. So I've always found that interesting because, you know, there's evidence of animals sensing things before, you know, before we do. And um, the noise, the sound of the impact of that plane hitting is something that I've never been able to describe, and yet it's something that I will never be able to forget because it was as if the earth cracked open. Um, It was just horrific, horrific, Um, and and stunning. And, uh, you know, people people didn't know what to do or what was happening, and I instantly felt fear um, and the possibility that um, that building could fall on us because all I had to do was just, you know, lift my eyes up to see what there was to see with mm. the tower. I didn't have to move or anything else. So we were in a straight shot within the tower. And, you know, because of its height and all, it just looked like, well, if it toppled, it would topple on us. Um, there was a security guard um, with the school, and she quickly, you know, was trying to gather everybody to come inside the building, and I felt conflicted because I know that uh, animals are not allowed inside <laughs> schools, um, but I, um, I quickly called my husband on the cell phone, and he works just a few blocks further up uh, the street, and he said, just, you know, get the girls, get the girls and go home. So I ran into the school with my dog, um, and... Uh, you know, got my my first daughter, the the first grader, and those kids had been, I think, outside, and so had heard something. So they were already, you know, crying and 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 freaked out. And uh, so I scooped up Sarah, and we went upstairs to get um, my other daughter, Emily, who was in fourth grade. And it was really kind of surreal because. Their door was closed. I peeked in. You know, everything seemed absolutely normal. Clearly, they had no idea what mm. had happened and somehow or other hadn't even heard. Uh-huh. So I knocked on the door, you know, to go in to get her, and I didn't know I didn't know what to say. I didn't mm. want to alarm them, and yet there was, you know, it's like, do you make the announcement just like that? Or anyway, I, I, I didn't say yeah. it, and I, you know, I grabbed my daughter, and, and, and we started heading home. We just live a couple blocks um, east of of there on Broadway and um we were we were running and in the course of that you know we witnessed people jumping and mm. the second plane hit and when that happened my dog was like a pack of wild horses and mm. it was all I could do to hang on to her as I'm you know trying to scoop up my my uh six-year-old daughter and I'm falling out of my shoes and my keys drop and my other daughter was running ahead so she was like half a block away and then suddenly someone out of nowhere this gentleman in a suit with a with a briefcase just 
like an angel kind of, you know, helped me get to where we were going. And yet, you know, we had to, when we got to Broadway, we had to turn and go south, which was where everybody was running away from. Everybody was running north. And, you know, people were looking at us like, you know, are, are, are you crazy? You know, but that's where, you know, we had to go in order to get into our building. So, um, well, there's a lot more to tell. That's just the well, first you know, few I was kind of chills as you were telling it. I mean, even though this was 11 years ago, it's it's it still has the emotional. Uh, it's still explosive, so to speak, emotionally. So, how? Um, I mean, your children saw the people falling or jumping out of the building. One of them, I think, did. Not the younger one. Yeah, my. And my has she think. talked about it, or I mean, what impact do you think? You, what have have you seen? in terms of your children as far as an impact of that day? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, the elder one in particular. Um, I mean, we all suffered PTSD, post, post-traumatic stress dis, uh, syndrome, PTSD. And um, I think ever since then she's been really fearful um, and not trusting of of life and whether and how long a life she may live mm. um, you know it was important to me that we all got therapy and I tried different forms of therapies um, and ultimately ex- um, experienced some um, EMDR which I know is used for trauma victims uh-huh. um, t- with some success I might add at least for myself personally because I was could, could, we were evacuated from our from our home just parenthetically. But once we f- did finally come back in in January, a few months later, I could not be out on the street and hear a fire engine go by without getting shil- chills and shaking and starting to cry. And but through the the work with the EMDR, I was ultimately able to. <laughs> have that experience of and look in New York City the you know the fire engines and the Every police day. cars the noise is you know it's it's constant right mm-hmm. but I was finally able to break through that that wall of of sort of stimulus response and and get beyond it so that I could recognize that just because I heard the sirens of a of a fire engine did not mean that my life was immediately in danger in the same way that I felt on 9/11 where you know, we're running for our lives, and we were in a war zone, and, you know, it's um, the end of the world, almost, was sort of the way it felt. Yes. And so do you think it affected your older daughter more than your younger daughter? Yes, I do. Yeah, And definitely. is that because you think she saw more, or because... Well, I think it's a ver- I think it's a combination of things. I think perhaps because she saw more, because she understood more, because... Mm-hmm. Um, of who she is, just, mm-hmm. you know, her own makeup as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, to this day, it, it's something that you really don't have to scratch the surface very far for either one of us, either she or I, to um, get right back to all of that, all of that emotion. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you're, um, there was a program at, at Carnegie Hall where mm-hmm. they use some of your words. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, Steve Reich, the uh, minimalist composer, many people know uh, his contemporary uh, colleague, um, um, Philip Glass, 
a little bit better than Steve Reich anyway, a, a phenomenal uh, musician, and actually he had won, uh, uh, I think he had won a Pulitzer uh, a few years ago. Anyway, um, he was our next-door neighbor for 20 years, mm-hmm. and um, he was not here on that day, but his son and daughter-in-law and their baby were, and we cared for them. Um, and uh, took them with us when we finally left at the end of the day. Anyway, he uh, was commissioned to write a work uh, of music um, by Carnegie Hall and uh, the Kronos Quartet, and he finally decided to to write a piece about uh, that day, about the events of that day. Mm. And he had um, some time ago written a piece um, that included spoken word, uh, and it was called Different Trains, and it was, you know, about the Holocaust and his experience as mm-hmm. a kid of riding trains from the East Coast mm-hmm. to the West Coast when he was a child. So what he did for this piece was to interview um, friends and, and neighbors and people who were there, and he took our stories and um, took words and phrases, and he turned them into music. Um, and that tells the story. Um, you know, some of what he has is the, you know, the, um, what's it called, NARAD. It's the, uh, you know, the police um, um, and official um, government sort of, you know, first response recordings, and then he also has the recordings of people like myself. And then at the very end, you know, there's a, uh, the third movement um, has to do with the, um, the Jewish women who stayed at the at the site uh, for the many months until it was finally declared that you know that was it. There was they were not going to look anymore for any any body or any body mm-hmm. parts. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't know about that part. Huh. Well. Um, you know. And 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 how do you feel about the fact that? Um, and I guess. I should ask you this too, Dr. Luft. How do you feel about the fact, what I was saying at the beginning of the show, that this is a much more, um, you know, that, that people are not taking this as seriously, there aren't as many people at the sites and so on. How do you feel about that? I, I actually wanted to address that because I couldn't agree with you more that not only is it incumbent upon us to not forget, it's incumbent upon us to to tell our stories so that those stories get get heard and repeated to younger generations because there's going to come a point in time where the people who experienced it won't be alive anymore yes. to tell those stories, like with World War II. Yes. So I actually was invited to speak at, up at Columbia University and um, to, a, to a class. It was a music class where they were actually doing some you know, work with Steve Reich's music. And I told my story, and the you know the kids were kind of blown away. But you know my story is just one tiny, tiny story. I, I liken it to a pebble, you know, in in a pond, and you see the concentric circles um, that go. And even though I was here at the epicenter, it doesn't matter where you were on that day. Everybody has a story, and it's really important for people to yes. share, share, and hear and be heard. Yes, and it is like the Holocaust. Well, we need to take a break. Um, You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guests are Dr. Benjamin Luff, the director of Stony Brook's World Trade Center Health Program for First Responders, Debbie Irwin, whose story you just heard. We're going to hear from Roy Cohn and Andy LaPointe when we come back. 
here, as I said, listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about 9-11 on 9-11 and inspirational stories of survival. And just one thing I want to, um, one point I want to make before we continue is that, you know, people um, do want to stick their head in the sand, and it's un- understandable, certainly to some degree. Um, it's called cognitive dissonance, this phenomenon. On the one hand, we're trying to pretend that 9-11 didn't happen, or at least it won't ever happen again. And on the other hand, we're bombarded every day by stories about terrorism. There's at least one story that connects to terrorism every day. And so... A lot of psychological energy is spent keeping away these memories, these thoughts, these news items, and so on. And um, we that's really dragging us down in, in a lot of ways, psychologically and physically. And if you're, if you're doubting what I'm saying, you know, how, oh, we're, we're still not affected, we're not still affected. Well, look at the obesity epidemic, for example. Um, why do you think that is? Um, well, there's a number of reasons, but the, one big reason is that we're all going towards comfort food because we're still trying to comfort ourselves since 9-11. Why do you think the economy has tanked? Again, there are lots of different reasons, but one reason is because workers are less um, attentive, less able to focus, more depressed, more anxious, really dealing with a lot of problems, even if they weren't there um, at these sites on that day. In a set, we're all suffering from what I call uh, terrorist stress syndrome. I've, I've sort of created a new... I talk about it in my book, a new um, definition for it rather than just PTSD because I think it's different than PTSD. So so just think about these things. You know, think about how people have changed. Um, and we really need to pay attention to this, acknowledge it, and and fix ourselves and also be in it for the long run in terms of running a marathon to be able to survive um, and thrive as we live under the ongoing constant threat of terrorism. So let me go to Dr. Luff now and, and ask you um, what you think about today's 
uh, acknowledgement or lack thereof of 9-11? Well, uh, you cannot help uh, but be moved by, by the story we heard, and I think that, that the story itself uh, tells us something about uh, how 9-11 has been uh, acknowledged from its very uh, beginning. Uh, you know, in, to many of us, uh, 9-11 was uh, two planes hitting these two towers and the towers uh, crumbling uh, and a tremendous amount of uh, dust that, that, that came. In, and that's the image that's been etched into our, our mind or the public's mind. But when you start to hear the, 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 the actual voices uh, of 9-11, the actual sound, uh, the, uh, the, the, the fear and the uh, terror that occurred, uh, the existential... Uh, issues that occurred. That's the part that uh, Americans, I don't think, have really come to grips with. Uh, you know, and again, you know, how people responded. You know, in so many ways, uh, our nation is not uh, measured by the actual uh, attack. I mean, that attack, those types of attacks have occurred throughout human history, you know, very heinous and uh, tragic uh, types of attacks, but it's the way that people respond to them that's so important. And until we come to grips with it and hear those stories uh, until we actually speak to our neighbors. You know, it's been estimated that 25% of Americans were either were either directly or indirectly uh, affected by, by the by 9-11. So there are plenty of stories out there, mm. and the fact is is that we need to reach out and talk to one another and hear those stories, and I think that, that was just right on target. Yes, absolutely. Well, why don't we uh, go now to Roy Cohn, who was quite at the center of it himself. Roy? Uh, yes, I was. What, what would uh, be helpful for me to share with you? Well, your experience of that day. Uh, uh, I was in my office, and um, I am a career coach and author, the Wall Street Professional Survival Guide, and uh, had been a World Trade Center tenant for many, many years uh, and experienced the uh, explosion back in 1993. So when uh, 9-11 occurred, it was not an unfamiliar feeling. The building shook, and I knew that something very, uh, very serious had happened. And I was the uh, deputy fire warden for our floor and uh, encouraged to actually uh, force people to leave, evacuate the floor immediately. And as we made our way down the, um, uh, down the emergency stairwell, uh, it was uh, just a, a, a tragic and... Uh, horrible feeling uh, to see the firemen who were just rushing up the stairs. And uh, it was only later that we all discovered that those firemen uh, never, never returned. So it was a, a, just a, uh, an overwhelming and very emotional experience and uh, not one that was easy, easily understood immediately because the, uh, of the assault was just so... Um, so overwhelming and so vast in its um, uh, in, in its context that it uh, uh, really sort of uh, created tremendous disruption for for uh, uh, in terms of uh, processing the information and coming to terms with it. Uh, 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 so it took a, it took days, weeks, months to uh, to digest what had really happened. And at the time that uh, when the building first started shaking, who did you call? Uh, well, uh, there was no one to call at the time. I was in my office uh, with. Uh, I mean, did you call your wife or your, someone in your family? Uh, well, when it happened, the, the uh, cell phones were 
just um, uh, uh, it was unable. To, we were unable to make any phone calls because uh, uh, no one knew exactly what happened. So, in evacuating the building, that was my first priority. Actually, was to make sure that people exited the building uh, immediately. So, um, uh, I and, you know, and, uh, it was not appropriate for me to be making any phone uh-huh. calls at that moment. So, so, you kind of went into the mode of where you had to to help the people to get out. Uh, yes, in fact, that was my role to uh, to make sure that the floor was evacuated, and then to make sure that people were in an orderly fashion uh, exiting from the building. There was quite a bit of confusion at the time, just because people didn't know if they uh, should return to their offices. We we have been told repeatedly over many many years that the building was indestructible. Mm-hmm. So the um, uh, the I, I think the prevailing belief was that we could have returned. But but no one uh, 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 actually did that. So, uh. and then that uh, day changed your life. Um, tell us about that. Well, in a lot of ways, uh, the as uh, Debbie pointed out, the um, uh, the event was horrific in its monumental uh, impact. And uh, to be standing outside uh, in just utter disbelief and uh, to be stunned by those events, to see people jumping from buildings, you, you, you realize that, that uh, this event had to be life-changing in, in some very significant ways, and it makes you, makes you realize how, how fragile our lives really are, and that, uh, uh, at least for me, um, if I didn't make sure that I was extracting every potential opportunity from every moment, um, I had no one to blame but myself. And I made the decision that I um, was really not doing enough to promote my own career and to move forward. I was very successful at the time, but I didn't feel like I was uh, fulfilling my potential and um, made some decisions about what I wanted to do professionally and began systematically to um, to unwind myself from various professional relationships and then reestablish my, uh, my business. And it's been a, uh, uh, from the ashes, uh, as a metaphor, a phoenix rises, and I was very fortunate that I was able to build something that was even bigger and better and um, uh, very gratifying professionally and personally. So it's been a, a, a very exciting uh, and uh, rewarding past couple of years, um, and unfortunately it just took a, uh, an event like 9-11 to uh, force me to reexamine my life. Uh-huh. Okay, and now um, Andy, I invited on the show Andy Lapointe um, because, well, he's going to tell you that he lost some some colleagues or friends, but um, but in, but beyond nine eleven, um, he was um, he'll tell you about the Times Square incident, and I thought it was important to include his story because we need to remember. <laughs> that um, indeed there are these attacks um, that are continuing. Of course, you know, none of them have been anywhere near the proportions of 9-11, but there have been a lot of things that have been stopped, uh, nipped in the bud that could have been disastrous. Um, And, of course, there is the famous Times Square incident, um, and you know what's, what's, what was fascinating to me about that was that the, the man who perpetrated it um, went to my <laughs> not at the same time. I didn't know him, but he went to my public school and my high school, Flushing High School. So, um, so I, that was a definitely and still is a very weird feeling to think that uh, 
you know, that a man who was raised in those same environments could turn out to, to be a terrorist. So, Andy, tell us your story. Thanks, Dr. Carroll, for having me on, and I certainly appreciate being on a call with um, uh, the individuals that were actually there that day. I certainly feel humbled by being on a call, but thank you very much for inviting me on it. And um, uh, September 11th, for me, although I wasn't there, as was mentioned earlier in the call, uh, a number of individuals were affected directly or indirectly. As a matter of fact, I was in Covington, uh, Covington Kentucky, and I was a mutual fund wholesaler registered investment advisor for 15 years, uh, which meant I covered uh, seven, eight, nine states. I traveled 150 nights per year. I was on airline, um, uh, flew about 100, uh, about 75,000 airline miles per year. So I spent a lot of time in New York City. As a matter of fact, just um, two or three weeks before 9-11, I was in New York. I was walking the halls of the World Trade Center and being in the financial services community, Although you know there's financial advisors all over the country, believe it or not, it's a very small community where a uh, number of the people that you see on CNBC, the, the money experts, the data experts, um, uh, the money managers from PIMCO, I've actually sat in meetings with those individuals. So it's a very, very small group, number one. But number two, we're very vastly separated by um, uh, by basically just windshield time in the car or airline miles. So, But for me, I was in Covington, Kentucky that morning. I still remember sitting in an advisor's office. Covington, Kentucky is just south of Cincinnati. Uh, sitting in an advisor's office, um, enjoying some coffee, chatting about the market with CNBC in the background. And then the breaking news comes through. And for the next 15, 20 minutes after those horrific events uh, just started unfolding, the first things that flashed through my mind was, number one, just like everyone else, what's going on? But more importantly, number two, as we started to realize what was going on, uh, we wanted to reach out to my family, although they were in Michigan. But more, but just as important, I wanted to see if my friends in New York were, were okay. And again, uh, I knew four individuals that didn't make it out of the towers from a you know, professional standpoint, talking with individuals, meeting with individuals. So it's a very emotional impact because those, those guys were just like me, just like you know, every other five father in the U.S. who went to work that morning, who had a wife, who had children at home, who had dreams, who had goals, who had, you know, retirement plans. They got up, put their shoes on like they do every morning, went to work, and unfortunately, some of them didn't make it home. And for me, it's a very emotional event just because I wasn't there physically, but emotionally. Um, I've always loved New York City. I remember when I was 10 and 12 years old, I still have the posters from the World Trade Center. I bought two or three posters. I still have in my warehouse uh, the World Trade Center just because I love New York so much. But more importantly is after that horrific event, it was – it was a situation where, number one, you had to come to grips where what happened because those normal people going to work in a non um, uh, in a, in a non high risk environment financial services that 's certainly not high risk, um, <laughs> but that morning it was but for me, just talking and talking through the situation because again, I flew seventy five thousand miles per year. I was in New York just a short time before that. So after everything settled down, as Roy mentioned, it was an opportunity for, for me to take a step back and say, okay, up until this point, I mean, I was in my uh, early 30s when this happened, up until this point, uh, life was good, so I thought, because I was doing what I needed to do, what I was trained to do in college, what I was trained to do um, in my profession, go out and do what I need to do. But 9-11 really helped me take a step back 
and realize that, you know what, I really need to reinvent myself. Rather than being a go-getter, so to speak, I need to give more back to my family. I need to give more back to myself, health-wise, mental, spiritual-wise. And more importantly, I needed to give more back to the community because after 9-11, I kind of realized that I was living a very selfish life. And to a certain degree, I think it's a responsibility of everyone today to to live their lives to the fullest that they can as a way to honor those who didn't make it out of those towers, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. Now tell us about Times Square. And interesting, in in Times Square, I mean, that happened in uh, 2010. Um, In 2005, I actually left the financial services industry. So I, from 9-11, when I made that choice, I'm not going to travel, you know, 150 nights per year. I'm not going to fly 75,000 miles. Other things are more important. So in 2005, as Roy mentioned, it was an opportunity to take a step back and kind of reinvent, become the bigger people that we know we are, but we just didn't know how to get there. And for me, that was a catalyst to take my first step. But in 2010, uh, May 1st, it was very interesting because on the flight out from Michigan to, um, to JFK, my wife and I were actually talking about 9-11, and we've been there um, three times to, um, uh, to the World Trade Center, Ground Zero. We've taken the kids there before 2010. So it's very important to educate the kids about what happened, educate um, why it happened, but more importantly, how to defend against that again. <laughs> Okay, I want to get. I want to bring you to Times Square. I'm worried about <laughs> yeah, running we, we've out been of there time. three times. So was it that? I think three, you're, like, psychologically, we've been I think there, you're... and it's it, we just we, we love it. We have got the firehouse sitting right there, and walking on the scaffolds, and I can't wait to see the memorial um, okay. after everything gets settled with that. But back to your question about uh, Times Square. <laughs> I think psychologically, um, you're 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 trying to avoid remembering it. So go ahead, or talking about it. <laughs> Well, actually, uh, Times Square, we actually um, went out there to promote a book that I just wrote. And we were staying in a hotel just south of uh, 45th and Broadway on Broadway. And we left the hotel about 6, 6, 10. And, you know, as you mosey up, as you mosey up Broadway, Times Square is to get, uh, um, you know, the T-shirts and the trinkets and trash for the kids. Um, basically, what we did is uh, walked up Times Square, and we promised the kids that we would call them at 6.30 from the Earth Cam, which is, you know, right there at 45th and Broadway, Kitty Corner, right, right in that area. And as we were walking up Times Square to tell them, you know, go and go, go to the Earth Cam at, you know, 640, watch Mom and I wave high from the Earth Cam. But anyways, at 630, right on the dot, we called the kids. And as my wife, Jen, was on the phone, I remember standing on the corner of 45th and Broadway with my flip video, looking around at the crowd. It was a nice spring evening at, um, you know, great time in New York. But anyways, I remember looking around and over to my right, because I was looking south, I believe it is. Over to my right, there was a black SUV with a big pile of trash and a police officer with his arms spread out, you know, with the gesture, what's going on here? But I had my flip video and I stopped it right before I scanned across there. And what attracted my eye to that area was a, you know, a six, seven foot pile of garbage that, you know, we wouldn't see in a small town. I live in 1,500 people in my small town and you just wouldn't see that. And I was thinking, maybe I should take this for the kids. But what happened is Jen got off the phone. She said, Andy, let's go. So we started walking up the, um, uh, walking up Broadway towards Times Square. And about four or five minutes later, we started to hear the sirens come down. Uh, first response, Unit 4 comes 
comes through Times Square, and by then we were up on Broadway, um, just south of the um, uh, the Renaissance, right there. We were standing right there as the first responder units coming down, and it was going that was about four or five minutes after that happened. But come to find out, that black SUV was the SUV packed full of explosives. It was set to go off at 6:30, according to terrorism experts, and we were standing right there on that corner at 6:30 on the dot. And how does that make you feel? At first, we didn't we didn't know what was going on for the first two or three hours. I mean, my wife and I, um, and I was taking videos of all downtown and the police officers and the horse patrol clearing out the streets. With it, did a great job. But once it hit us, it hit us about eleven o'clock when news actually came out. Um, eleven, twelve o'clock at night when news actually came out because my twelve-year-old son was actually on the internet trying to find out what was going on. He was up at you know twelve o'clock finding out what's going on. But once we found out what happened, it was unbelievable because, number one, it brought the reality that life in and of itself can end for any of us at any time, number one. But more importantly for number two, what it really, really did, and as, as I was flying back, my wife and I were looking at each other, we looked at it and it says, number one, there was obviously an angel on not only on our shoulders that was on everyone's shoulders in Times Square that day. But, but more importantly is how that makes me feel today is it helped me grow to a person where not to live life with regrets. Mm-hmm. Because if we didn't start following that motto, we wouldn't, we wouldn't allow us to go back to ground zero next year as we're planned. We wouldn't allow us to go to you know, Florida on vacation. It wouldn't allow us to go to... Um, Rome to take the kids, you know, for my son's senior birthday. Um, it, it's uh, actually those events after we've internalized it and then not internalized it. If that makes any, if that makes any sense, it allowed us to live life to a greater degree, and again, not to live life with regrets. Because if we live life re- with regrets, that means someone else has won, and if someone else has won in these instances, that's the terrorists, and that's exactly what they want to have happen. Yes, yes. Well, let me throw the floor. You know, I, and I think what's what's so important is that it's an example of how, in fact, um, it, it hasn't stopped and isn't going to stop after nine eleven, and um, which is why we need to make ourselves psychologically and physically strong. Um, I mean, not prepare just with duct tape. <laughs> I love that, but um, but to to make ourselves. Um, as strong as we can, so that when when something does happen, uh, even you know if it's you're standing next to a car that blows up, or if it's something more on the magnitude of 9/11, um, that you will be able to to have the resilience to survive that. Um, well, I'll let me open the floor up. We don't have that much time left, but um, does anyone? I have a I have a couple of anecdotes. Yeah. I, I I would like to share. They're they're not overarching sure. big big, big issue, but I think they're things that will be interesting to your listeners yeah. because it's kind of um, a little bit unusual. Uh, a friend of mine who worked downtown um, sought refuge in our apartment here with some of her colleagues, and um, there was one point where after the towers fell and these people felt that it was safe for them to go, and even though we were in our home and feeling safe, <laughs> we were still in the epicenter. They wanted to get the hell out of our place. But one guy came up to me and asked me if he could have a knife from my kitchen. Huh. 
to which we said no, but clearly that showed nobody knew what was going on. He wanted a weapon with which to defend himself. Oh. You know, we, we forget that for, for, for a brief period there, nobody really knew. We keep saying nobody knew what was happening, nobody, but we really didn't know. We didn't know if, if City Hall was going to be attacked next, if the, you know, Federal Plaza, which is a block away from here. So I just think that that's an interesting, um, you know, um, point but yes then because in, because it was so confusing he thought that a knife would help him to protect himself to, exactly exactly mm. because he didn't know you know what what was what was right. happening right so and then the other thing um you know we were evacuated for for a few months and and when we did come back my girls and i my family was separated um but when we did come back we were treated as outsiders by the neighborhood people who had stayed Huh. in the area um, during, you know, the post, you know, post 9-11. Now, the schools were so crowded, there were 70 kids in a classroom, um, and, you know, they used the closets for, you know, for as part of the classroom also. Um, we were fortunate we had have another house upstate, which is where we were able to, uh, to be and, and to recover, really. Um, but to come back and to be treated like um, an outcast mm-hmm. because of that, I think is a really fascinating phenomenon that you don't hear too much about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, that you didn't stay and suffer That's to the extent right. that they did. Hmm. That's right. That's right. And somehow we were, you know, less less affected than they were. Yes. Um, you know, yes, it's probably true. We didn't inhale that horrible air, <laughs> but... Hmm. Anyway, I just want to share that. Yes, no, I'm sure, well, like Dr. Luft said, there are all these stories that are so important to keep out there. Right. Um, uh, and, here we, and here we have the, the music to close. Well, let me thank my guests for sharing all your stories. Dr. Benjamin Luft, the director of Stony Brook's World Trade Center Health Program for First Responders, Debbie Irwin, Roy Cohn, and Andy LaPointe, thank you so much for sharing your stories and uh, bringing home what the real meaning is of this day and how much it has affected us and still does. And I'd like to tell all my listeners that today you should honor the victims, you should light a candle, say a prayer, hug your children, and prepare. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 